It's worth knowing what's really going on. This is the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. While working on her photo essay about the Underground Railroad, Janine McNabales became intrigued by the seminal role the anti-slavery movement played in the birth of the women's suffrage effort here in the United States. Through her research, she became captivated by the work of Inez Milholland. Milholland was in her early 30s when she became one of the most visible and electrifying advocates for women's right to vote. Through newspaper clippings, letters from Milholland to her husband, and other documents, Mickna Bales set out on a three-year quest to recreate Milholland's last campaign for women's suffrage using friends, volunteers, rented venues, and costumes. Photographs from Standing Together, Inez Milholland's final campaign for women's suffrage, are now on view at the Arnica Dawkins Gallery. Rosalind Bentley spoke with Mickna Bales about Standing Together and what it took to create that big event in her epic life. Welcome, Rosalind. Hey. How are you doing, Shane? I'm doing great. So this sounds like a, a pretty fascinating exhibition. It actually is. I mean, you know, this exhibition, well, this series was actually supposed to have been presented last year, which would have been, you know, what, our 100th anniversary of women's suffrage, you know, the big 19th Amendment Um anniversary but of course the pandemic kind of postponed that but right. now this show is on view and it really is um pretty breathtaking in a lot of ways right so she's she's basically recreating these moments and photographs um so so i mean it's an interesting take an interesting way to uh to look at at, at a historical moment actually you know it really is. I mean, the thing of it is, is that um, Janine, by training and by most of her career, was like in advertising, right? And marketing. And then she decided that she really wanted to storytell as a photographer. And so she is drawn to history. She's not a trained historian, anything like that, but she is just drawn to the historical narrative. So one of her first efforts was this recreation of what it was like for um, people who were enslaved trying to escape at night in the Underground Railroad. And she shot all of those photos across many, many states at night to depict that journey. And so we see her here returning to that same technique. She was just captivated by Inez Milholland's efforts to get women the right to vote. And so that's what she did. She, Janine studied, she read uh, Milholland's letters, went to the Library of Congress and just poured through all of these documents and then began to recruit friends and others in the states where Milholland did her last campaign. And Janine just went and took these photos and did it Oftentimes, from the perspective of Mulholland, she had to go by train quite often. She had to go by Model T car. That's what Janine would do. And then she would take these photos so that you could begin to see what Milholland saw on this last campaign to rally 
women and men to the cause of allowing women the right to vote across the nation. Yeah, I love I love the fact that it, it feels almost like, uh, uh, you know, we, we have so many films that recreate historical moments, but it's it seems a little more unusual to do it in still photographs. And, and I think that's that's a, a really interesting way to do it, create art, basically. And when you see some of these photos up close now, the show that is at Arnika's gallery right now, it's just a sampling of the hundreds of photos that Janine took. All of the photos are actually contained in the book that Janine did on the campaign itself. And that book is same title, Standing Together, Inez Milholland's Final Campaign for Women's Suffrage. But when you go and you see the photographs up close, um, some of them are really mammoth in size. Um, you are taken to this moment in history. And McNabales has done it in such a way, however, that she's made when she depicts people, she's tried to make it inclusive and of the now. And by that, I mean, she has stand-ins for Inez Milholland. Milholland was um, a very privileged, very smart white woman. But when McNabales depicts her, she uses women of all ages, of all races, to show that there has been some progress along the way. And so um, you will hear quite a bit about her process, how she recruited these folks, some of the difficulties, and then some of the surprises that she found while she was documenting this woman's life. All right. Well, that's great. And you can see uh, the show at uh, Arnika Dawkins Gallery through Christmas, right? Correct. Correct. It has been extended. It was supposed to have ended earlier, but it's been pretty popular. So it's been extended now, at least through Christmas. All right. Well, great. Well, let's hear uh, from Janine McNabales. Thanks so much for bringing us this conversation, Ross. You're welcome. So we're here this morning with Janine McNabales, and she has a new show up now at the Arnika Dawkins Gallery on Cascade Road. And Janine's show is Standing Together, photographs of Inez Milholland's final campaign for women's suffrage. So welcome. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's very excited to talk to you about this project. So I just want to start off with us talking just a little bit about Inez herself and how she came to women's suffrage, because we're talking about a woman who was alive, um, you know, around the time of World War One, who lived on the Upper East Coast and probably would have had something of a privileged background. Um, growing up. And so I would love to hear more about her story uh, for women's equality. Well, she, um, once I, I found her as the suffragist that I kind of wanted to follow and help shepherd us into this, this story, um, the more I learned about her, the more I became enamored with her. And um, she just was an amazing person. She grew up between New York and London, obviously from a very privileged background. Um, but when she was in London, her parents would have uh, cocktail parties and she would sit at the top of the stairs and listen in and they would have major people coming through talking about uh, politics and everything. And I think that kind of formed her way of thinking about things uh, as she was growing up. They definitely had Emmeline Pankhurst come through um, those cocktail hours, who was the head of the British suffragette movement. Um, 
And I think that was her kind of initial exposure to that. And she actually did go out and give speeches on soapboxes in London prior to coming back to the United States and living in New York and getting involved with the movement there. How old was she when she was standing on soapboxes in London? That's a good question. I'm guessing teenager years um, because she did move back to go to uh, Vassar College where she graduated from prior to uh, applying to law school. So she graduated from Vassar in 1909 and then she applied to Columbia, Harvard and Yale law schools, but she was turned down from all three because she was female. Um, And then she did end up getting her law degree at New York University and I was a practicing lawyer after that. And so did she want to, with her law degree, was that her main focus, was finding a way to make it legal for women to vote? I don't know if that was necessarily the purpose of her law degree. She definitely was into a lot of causes to help people. Um, Her father helped form the NAACP in New York. They were very much about social reform. She also was um, part of the shirt waste factory, I guess, um, strikes. She was arrested alongside with some of the other people that were protesting and thrown in jail. And then because of her privilege, she didn't spend the night in jail um, and was bailed out by her father. So then they, they kind of, the rest of the movement felt a little bit abandoned by her. So I think she felt um, she had a lot of steps to go through before she came to the suffrage campaign that I photographed where she felt like she had failed. And so by the time she came to the, this campaign, she was determined that she was going to succeed and it ultimately ended up costing her her life. Well, talk to me a little bit about that early suffrage work on the Upper East Coast and how she then came to take this cross-country trip for the cause, which you document so beautifully um, in Standing Together. Well, she, um, I think her first time that she was part of, I guess, a suffrage parade was, um, I guess it wasn't even a parade. So there was a parade down in the streets of New York and she was sitting up on a second floor office building in a window. Um, And I can't remember what the parade was for. Maybe it was for a congressman or some kind of political parade. And she was, uh, she had flyers for women's rights to vote and suffrage. And she was yelling out the window and um, pretty soon there was a crowd around the window listening up to her and she was passing down the flyers. And um, so I think that was her kind of first introduction into speaking in this, in these states. Um, And so that kind of spread through some of the, you know, local suffragists. So when they had a 1910 um, suffrage parade, they had asked her to lead uh, that parade uh, or be one of the, I guess, leaders of that parade. And so she was on horseback and she had, I guess, worn the Star of Hope, which is a crown um, that I photographed for the series or I had it remade and then photographed for the series. Uh, And she kind of described her dress in detail where she was wearing um, for this particular parade. It was the Maltese cross, which is, you know, kind of a symbol for, um, I guess, helping and freedom. And then that star of hope. And she kind of hoped that it would usher in a new age for women so that they would be more equal with men. Okay. And from that, from that parade, she then decided, wasn't she approached, but because she got so much publicity for her presentation in that parade, wasn't she then approached by other suffragists to say, you know, there are a couple states where women can vote, we need it in all states, would you take this trip? Yeah, so prior to that, so she was in the 1910 parade in New York, and then um, Alice Paul, was part of the National American Women's Suffrage Association, which short is NASA. Um, 
they were a part of the congressional union of that particular organization. And they did a, a national women's suffrage parade in Washington, D.C. in 1913. And that was the first time that they really tapped Inez for a major, major role. So she led that parade on um, Gray Dawn, who was a white horse. And again, wearing the Star of Hope um, at that, in that particular parade, she was wearing a blue cape that she dubbed the Blue Mantle of Freedom. Um, and she was very much a new woman, which was uh, designated as women who were kind of looking to enter into the public sphere of life and not just remain in the home and kind of start to step out into uh, being equal with men in a public, uh, public view and public light. Um, so that parade became very violent quickly. Um, women were pulled off of floats, they were beaten, um, signs were torn and ripped up, men congregated into the street and tried to block their way. And uh, Inez went ahead and kept the parade going and rode uh, Grey Dawn through the men in order to get this uh, parade to the ending and get the women to safety. Um, and then all of that publicity from the parade and the fact that it was so negatively received and violently received uh, verbally as well as physically was in all of the papers all over the country. And so um, again, that kind of got the idea of, of women's suffrage and um, women being equal because of the way they organized the parade. They had sections where they had teachers grouped together um, and then they had lawyers walking together and then they had politicians walking together because they wanted to highlight the fact that women were capable in these areas and just as strong and just as equal as men. Um, and so that kind of carried through all the publicity about the parade. So that transferred to this Western campaign idea that they hatched. And that's when they asked Inez to kind of, I guess, help spearhead that and be one of the, I guess, we call them keynote speakers. But back then they were calling her a special flying envoy to head the campaign. I love that phrase, a special flying envoy. So... Well, tell us about this trip. So she embarked on the trip. Um, I'm trying to remember the exact month here, but she embarked on the trip and it was meant to be kind of a whirlwind tour. Yes. So basically, um, after the congressional union that was part of NASA that I mentioned, um, they kind of split off after that parade. And I think one of the main reasons that they split off is because for the Washington DC parade is the specific parade I'm talking about. Um, uh, Alice Paul and others had agreed to invite um, black women to participate in the parade, but the women that headed NASA disagreed and did not want the black women to come. Um, and so Alice Paul listened to them and uninvited them. Um, but we have quite a few women that went ahead and came anyway, and they did step into the parade um, and, and became a part of it. But I remember that Inez and, and Alice Paul and some of the other women were very much upset by that turn of events and that kind of um, that racial discrimination against other fellow suffragists. Um, so they formed the uh, National Women's Party, which was no longer part of NASA. It was its own organization. And um, they were going for a national amendment because there were, there were two ways of going about trying to get women's um, rights to vote at that time. It was a state-by-state -state route, and then there was a national route. And obviously, you know, some of the states had succeeded, but a lot of the Southern states and even up into the New England area, um, you know, they had voting rights back in the 1700s before the country was formed and then they got systematically taken away. And so they were trying to reinstate them. Um, and a lot of the major, I guess, movements for those particular states like New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, they had just been defeated in the state-by-state -state route. So that's why the National Women's Party, I think, was so strong in going for that, that national vote. Um, 
So they decided in 1916 to have this uh, campaign where they would send keynote speakers, suffragists from the East Coast, out to the Western states where women had the right to vote. And at that time, there were 12 states. Um, they were uh, California, Idaho, Wyoming, Arizona, Colorado, um, Nevada, Washington, Oregon. I'm sure I'm missing some in there. But uh, so they, women were going out to, I guess, uh, this was leading up to the 1916 presidential and congressional elections. And this was uh, obviously President Wilson was already in office, so he was up for reelection. And the women were frustrated with his lack of inaction on the matter and basically just pretty much ignoring it. Uh, so they wanted to, I guess, have all of the women from the Western states pile up a protest vote against the Democrats because that was the party that was currently in power that was ignoring votes for women. And so they didn't think that this protest vote would actually change the outcome of the election, but they wanted to hopefully make sure that Wilson and the, his fellow Democrats for Congress did not win in the Western states where women were voting. They wanted to make a statement to say, hey, we're here and we matter and you need to pay attention to what we want. Okay. And so this is, I mean, just to see the orchestration of this to make sure that women would have that right. And this um, sort of almost speakers bureau, if you will. So um, on this trip though, did they give her the, you know, the states we want you to go here, here and here, or was she able to set her own path? So she was given an insane schedule um, and, and the other women speakers were as well. So uh, originally I think they had wanted Inez to start her trip in April, um, but her health wasn't great. And so she had postponed it. Uh, she was also wrestling with the fact of how if she wasn't behind something completely in her mind, it was hard for her to speak to it. So I'm not discounting the fact that she was behind wanting women to vote because she was very much behind that. But the strategy that the National Women's Party had adopted to speak against Wilson and the Democrats, she had to kind of spin that in her mind because it wasn't that they were against the Democrats. They were against any party. So if the Republicans had been in power at that time and they were against women's rights to vote, then they would have been against them. So once she was able to kind of spin that in her head, then she was willing to go on the trip and be able to speak. Um, so she ended up going in October and left with her sister Vita and they left from New York and she ended up covering eight of the 12 states that she was supposed to cover. And she was supposed to be on the road for a full month and then return to Chicago the night before the presidential election and give the final speech. Uh, she made it uh, 21 days over about, um, I think she gave 50 speeches and these were anywhere from auto parades to tea parties, lunches, dinners, banquets. Um, she was even giving impromptu speeches on the train. Uh, she was giving whistle stop speeches off of the back of the train. Uh, she was giving speeches uh, in the West's grandest theaters at night. Um, Meanwhile, during the day, she would have given three or four speeches prior to going to a theater at night. Um, so that's when I said an insane schedule. Um, Alice Paul definitely had these women. They were traveling all night long via train. Uh, they originally, her and Vita had to have a private car from 
Chicago, Illinois, where they stopped to meet with Alice Paul, which is National Women's Party headquarters at that time. And then they were going on to Cheyenne. So from Chicago to Cheyenne, Vita, um, Inez's sister had arranged for a private car. And when the press found out about this, they blasted them and said, how dare you spend this much money on this campaign? Um, so after that, they were put into coach, often boarding the train two, three, four o'clock in the morning, um, and all the sleeping berths are already full. And so they were doing this over and over and over every night. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Inez um, was diagnosed with pernicious anemia prior to the trip, uh, which back then um, was kind of a questionable disease and they didn't know really how to treat it. Um, as she was going along the campaign trail, she also developed uh, a severe case of tonsillitis and strep throat to the point where several doctors recommended that she get her tonsils taken out immediately. And they were that concerned for her. And she, uh, she knew that if she were to have her tonsils taken out, her ability to speak on this trip was going to go away. So she figured she would just wait until after the campaign and get it taken care of. Um, and the doctors are also prescribing medicine to help her get through this because she did have a very high fever and chills as well. So they had prescribed her iron, which for the pernicious anemia probably was a, a good, a good um, I guess, prescription to prescribe. But they also gave her arsenic and strychnine. And then so slowly the prescription medicine that they were giving her was uh, killing her because they just, medicine back then didn't know what was the correct option for the diseases. Did they not know that arsenic and strychnine were poison? They didn't, unfortunately. And she, um, she would be so sick and so unable to go forward that she would double and sometimes triple what she was supposed to be taking. Which, um, and I, I was reading her letters uh, that she would send back to her husband. And um, it was heartbreaking to read them because now I'm gonna tear up, but it was, it was just, um, she, she thought she was getting better. She thought the medicine was making her better and she was becoming a very good orator and speaker. And probably her father had designs for her for a political career ultimately, and she felt very much like she was accomplishing something and did not want to give up. And um, she wanted to start a family with her husband. So that was contained in the letters quite a bit. And so it was just as you're reading these letters, knowing what is coming, it was just, it's, it's heartbreaking. And, you know, as we know, and we, history teaches us, and your photos teach us that she didn't get that chance. I would love to hear how you came to decide that she was, I mean, after hearing this story, how could you not, but how you decided this was the story, the next project that you wanted to take on because another one of your projects, which was also shown and well-received at the Arnika Dawkins Gallery was Through Darkness to, to Light, photographs along the Underground Railroad. And so... Can you talk, and that was such a passionate um, documentation or reimagining of what that journey must have been for a person who was enslaved. So can you talk to me about how you decided, here is Inez Melholland's story. Here is how I am going to tell it. Definitely. So I came across the beginnings of the women's rights movement while I was uh, researching for Through Darkness to Light. Uh, they, the roots of the women's rights movement is actually in the anti-slavery movement. So uh, two key players, Luc Lucretia Mott, and um, I can't off the top of my head, I'm drawing a blank, I'm sorry for the other woman, but they had gone to England for a major anti-slavery meeting. And this is in the 1840s. Uh, and they were barred from entering the meeting because they were women. And so 
they, they were dumbfounded and couldn't believe that, you know, they're allowed to speak in all of these places back in the States, but they weren't allowed in England. And so, um, but then again, women speaking in public, even in the States back then was kind of taboo. So that's where the Seneca Falls Convention came out of that we're all, you know, know and, and have heard of. The first women's rights convention in, in New York was 1848. So, um, and, and a lot of the key players from the abolitionist movement, um, Sojourner Truth, Frederick Douglass, all of these people were definitely part of the women's suffrage movement. Um, and uh, definitely were for women being equal and for them uh, being able to vote. And uh, that I think a lot of what happened with the racial divide of the movement was definitely related to the order of how things happened, if you will. Um, the fact that the 15th Amendment was passed before the 19th Amendment um, and the 15th Amendment was the amendment that gave um, Black men the right to vote. Uh, granted, that was denied in some states or quite a few states until 1965. But there were a lot of women that were angry that they hadn't given the chance, been given the chance to vote. Um, and they kind of turned their backs on Frederick Douglass and some of those other key players like Sojourner Truth and others. And then that's kind of where the, the divide started in the movement racially. Um, but fast forwarding to, um, I wanted to, when I came across that, that um, the roots of the women's suffrage movement, I knew I wanted to pursue a project on that at a later date. Um, I am from Indiana. And so uh, when I started researching the suffrage movement to do a project, I wasn't quite sure how it was going to work because, <clears throat> excuse me, it was definitely a movement that was very divided, as I just mentioned, on racially, socioeconomic levels, as well as North versus South levels. Again, we're dealing with the same politics that we were before. Um, also, uh, it encompassed a hundred years. And um, by the time we come to Inez's time, it's it's been 60 years. Um, and hundreds of women, hundreds of men. So I was trying to figure out a way to, to, to gain access visually and tell the story. And then I was thinking, well, perhaps I can just follow one person or, or tell one person's story. And so um, I had ACL reconstructive knee surgery uh, and I had ordered a bunch of books on the suffrage movement. And one of the books came with a postcard in it. And on that postcard was a banner that um, Inez had carried in that 1910 uh, parade that I mentioned. And uh, basically the gist of the banner says forward out of darkness, forward into light or forward out of error, forward into light. And um, as mentioned, my previous body of work was entitled through darkness to light photographs along the underground railroad. So when I saw that banner, I kind of took it as a sign that the universe was trying to tell me something and that um, I, I needed to figure out who was, who was the person behind that banner. So that's when I found Inez and found her kind of name and started learning about her. And then that's when I, I became enamored with her and figured that she would be the person that would kind of shepherd us through this story. All right, and now we are going to take a break. And when we return, we'll hear a little bit more from Janine McNabales on Standing Together. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com 
and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, the Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. All right, and now we are back with Janine McNabales talking more about Inez Mulholland's life. And you are, I want to get into the details of how you did the trip, but you are not necessarily, um, you know, a formally trained historian archivist, correct? No, my former career is in advertising. I was an advertising art director, creative side for about 20 years. Talk to me about how you organized this trip, because this had to have taken, you know, at least years to be able to get access to some places, find the women that you wanted to photograph, um, you know, again, to be able to arrange for a vintage locomotive (laughs) to run, you know, so you could take a picture of it, you know, while it's moving. So talk to me about the process. Yeah, it was, it was, um, again, with all of my projects, they are very, very uh, research intensive. So a lot of it was um, trying to find. So what I did, first of all, is I um, learned as much as I could about Inez, uh, found where her um, archive is housed, which is in the Harvard, um, Harvard University's uh, Schlesinger Library, which I think is ironic because they wouldn't let her in for law school, but they'll house her papers and take her papers there. <laughs> um, so, uh, so I basically printed out a 1916 October like month map off of the computer, and I made it really, really big, like two feet by three feet. Um, And then I would go to each source that I could find. So Inez's letters would kind of detail some of the places she'd been, who she was speaking with. Um, Her own words gave me a lot of the ideas of where and how to photograph out of those letters. Um, I was using the uh, suffragist uh, magazine that was produced by the National Women's Party and that um, microfilm is housed at the Library of Congress. Uh, So I was at the Library of Congress a couple times going through that, as well as the National Women's Party papers are located there too on microfilm as well. Uh, So I was filtering through um, their correspondence, I guess, aspect of that. So I was able to find some of Inez's original speeches, um, as well as I was dumbfounded with Alice Paul and how she, they organized hundreds of women giving these speeches in these 12 Western states over, you know, six month time period via telegram and handwritten letters and they saved all of these and they're in, in this archive. And it was just amazing to see back and forth, just the kind of uh, coordination that went into trying to get this campaign off the ground and continue going. And, and speaking to a lot of the women like Harriet Stanton Blatch, who was Elizabeth Cady Stanton's daughter from the first Seneca Falls convention Uh, Harriet was in her 60s and was one of the keynote speakers on the trip. And after about two and a half weeks, she said, I can't do this anymore. I'm going to get sick. I have to quit. The younger women need to take over and be the ones that are doing this. Um, So -hmm. again, I think that was another one of the reasons that Inez felt like she had to continue because women were getting sick and dropping out. And she was like, no, I have to keep going. I have to keep going. Um, so I, I'm trying to think of other sources. A lot of local newspapers um, covered the, the campaign trail. And it was interesting to read those because if they were a Democratic-leaning newspaper, they were unfavorable of the campaign trail. And if it was a Republican-leaning newspaper, they were more favorable. Um, they also had you know, different organizations that had her come in and speak would have different little notices or whatever. Um, 
So what I did was when I would find a source, I would write it on that calendar and then I would kind of indicate where I got it from. And so that's how I was able to piece together kind of her route of where she went and when she was where, because I had, I did find an itinerary that um, was in, I guess, the National Women's Party paperwork. So I found one itinerary and then I found an, a, another updated set um, and there were some, a few differences. But, um, you know, trains, they were, they ran late or sometimes she didn't make it to a certain area because the, they just wouldn't have made it in time. And there was another city that was more important. Um, so it was kind of a lot of detective work to figure out the actual trail of where she went. Um, and then I guess, as, but, go ahead. But I did want to ask this though, but talk to me about how you photographed you know, and how you found the models, how you were able to arrange uh, some of the shoots, and then also how you, the process you used or the different cameras you used for certain images. Definitely. So, um, as far as finding a lot of the women, so what I decided to do, one of the things I wanted to make sure to do was that in my eyes, Inez and her fellow suffragists gave all women the right to vote. Um, yes, the 19th Amendment didn't necessarily guarantee that all women did get the right to vote, but ultimately in you know 1965, when the Civil Rights Act was passed in 1962, when Utah finally allowed uh, Native Americans to vote, um, it, it, it all came together. So I made sure that I had different women standing in for Inez and her fellow suffragists, whether um, it was you know, people of different race or different ages or different socioeconomic backgrounds. I just wanted it to encompass the view of what all women could be. Um, so I approached um, organizations like the uh, League of Women Voters uh, before I would go into a certain town and, and send an email saying I was coming uh, to do these photo shoots, would there be anybody that would be available? And they would send out that email to their uh, base group and then people would respond. Um, I also did the same thing with AAUW, which is American Association of University Women. Uh, so I was just trying to think of organizations that were women-based that would support a project like this. Um, and it worked very well in Chicago. I was able to have about seven women come and photograph for the day. And it was lovely. They gave up their entire day. And I think some of them actually still talk because we spent a, a nice day together. Um, so that's kind of how I would find women um, on the, I guess, on the, you know, location shoots. And then some of the uh, overarching images that weren't kind of location specific, I did um, where I'm based in Dallas so I could tap uh, friends and family. Um, and I did take my mom on a trip with me. And then another trip I took with one of my friends, Tamara, because she had just moved and was between jobs. And so she was able to take a, a week and come with me on a trip. Um, and then as far as kind of the way I chose to photograph the images, uh, this was all shot digitally on a Canon system. My background of photography is a four by five view camera. So if you think of a smaller version of like an Ansel Adams camera with the bellows, um, but the reason that I liked that four by five camera is that if you're photographing architecture, you can make sure that the lines of the buildings remain parallel and don't kind of go up and converge. Uh, in the Canon system, they have lenses that are called tilt shift lenses and those lenses kind of mimic those movements of the four by five camera so that you can keep that architecture straight. Um, but as far as the way the um, images look in the series, they're very distinct in that the landscape images are, I kind of viewed them as being seen through Inez's eyes. So the landscape images are untouched and they're meant to be um, kind of the views of the American West. 
And the reason that I did decide to, sh to photograph those, um, I guess, landscape images is because Inez talked about the uh, Western landscape in great detail to her um, husband in the letters that she hand wrote. And she even mentioned in one letter, it's absurd for her to be seeing these beautiful things without him. And she wanted to come back and see the Western landscape with him um, in the future. And then uh, as far as the other images that are kind of still life images or reenactment images with the uh, women standing in for Inez, uh, I chose to kind of treat them in a way um, again, it is a digital process, but uh, the way that you would have seen a color photograph in the early 1900s was um, they were called autochrome Lumieres, and they were by two French brothers, the Lumiere brothers, and they would take potato starches and put them, print them on glass um, and so the way you would have viewed this glass image was for the glass image to be backlit. Um, and then the colors, because you're dealing with potato starch would kind of shift. So the colors were, and, and the contrast, like the darks were really dark and the, um, the lights weren't, weren't very too, too bright. Um, and then again, that color shift. And then because they were on the, the glass plates, there'd be dust and scratches on them. So I kind of did a, a digital treatment to the images to kind of nod to that um, color palette and the way the images would have looked if they had been done back from that time period. And then one of the ways we displayed them in the gallery was I made these handmade uh, light boxes that were, so it's not, the images are printed on paper, which is a, a you know, a deviation. So it's kind of like a, a blend of modern technology with the look of the past and then the backlit uh, nature of how you would have viewed those images. And then when I uh, handmade the light boxes, I used aniline dyes and um, graining liquid. And then I, um, used amber shellac, which is kind of how they sealed wood back then, not varnish or whatever, but amber shellac. And then I hand waxed them out. Um, and then I used uh, these kind of reproduction cords that were cloth uh, wrapped. And then the plug that goes into the wall has kind of an acorn decoration on it. Um, a nod again to that arts and crafts uh, mission style time period of furniture and things. Right. Having seen that, it lends such an air. It takes you really, it puts you in that moment, particularly the, the light boxes. And I'm hopeful that when people go and see the show, they pay special attention to those details because several of the photographs are also framed in what look like vintage frames, if I'm Yes, yes. So we did um, the handmade, uh, I guess, light boxes are for the bigger size prints. And then the smaller size prints, they are actually, I guess, antique frames. Um, so I, I guess in the back of my mind, at some point, I knew I was going to be working on this project, but I didn't really know. <laughs> so some of those frames are from 15, 20 years ago. Um, we have an old home. Our house was built in, in 1910, 1911. So um, we have a lot of furniture and, and stuff that goes with that arts and crafts mission time period. So I was collecting the frames for, I guess, our house or, or whatever. And so then they've been kind of just sitting in a box for all these years. And then I was like, oh, well, I can use those. <laughs> it came in handy. Exactly. I have to know how you got the train shot. There's a beautiful photograph of, um, well, there's several of train tracks, but then there, you know, there's one that's set on the train, well, on a train that um, Inez would have traveled on. And then there are some beautiful shots of this locomotive just steaming forward. So uh, there are various train museums around the country. So um, 
I believe these are three different train museums in the, um, in the series. So the one with the train steaming on the tracks is from the Tennessee Valley Railroad uh, in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And there's a train museum there. And um, I had, I'm, I, I guess, I don't know why, but I'm very drawn to old things. <laughs> so uh, I had wanted to photograph the trains and so I actually took that image um, when I went there back in 2012. So the, that was even prior to working on this project. So again, interestingly enough, I, I was working on it ahead without even knowing. Um, so that's where that image was taken. They were having a, a Halloween, I guess, <laughs> where they were running the train for the kids. Um, so I was able to be a part of that. And then I photographed, you know, the... Um, in exchange for them letting me photograph there, I kind of took a pictures of the event for them to use. Um, and then the other two uh, train museums, one is the Museum of the American Railroad, which is uh, here in Texas. It was down at Fair Park, but it's now moved up into Frisco, Texas. Um, Fair Park is in Dallas, Texas. And then the other museum is um, the it's an amazing, amazing museum. So if anybody is ever in Sacramento, California, you need to go to this train museum. Um, so they have a, an amazing collection there of uh, cars and uh, luggage and, uh, um, you know, different trains had different China. So they have the China there. And um, so I was able to, you know, photograph, that's where the whistle stop speech image is, was taken, was off the back of one of the trains there that they had out in a train shed. And then um, just down the street is the California Automobile Museum. And that's where I was able to find a 1915 Ford Model T because uh, between, uh, I guess, train rides, she would have been traveling in a car. And so I was able to, um, I guess one of the volunteers at the um, museum, he has been driving Ford Model T since his dad bought one when he was 11 years old and he was in his sixties. So they let him take the Ford Model T out of the museum so we could photograph it. And um, that was one of the trips that my friend Tamara was with on me so she could step in and, and play Inez. And um, after we were in the car for roughly an hour, um, you're sitting on the, the seat is over the top of the gas tank. So oh. we're driving on paved roads, which they wouldn't have pay, been paved back in the early 1900s. Um, sitting on top of the gas tank. So the gas is kind of sloshing around under you. Plus the fumes are coming out. So you're breathing in this lovely smell of, of gas. Um, so after about half an hour, we both had splitting migraine headaches. Um, so I can't imagine having spent a day riding around <laughs> in these cars because um, she actually did in Nevada, took the train to, um, I guess, Reno. And then that day they took her from Reno to Virginia City via motor car. Uh, she gave a speech there in the early afternoon. Then they took her to Silver City and she gave a speech there at dusk. And then they drove her to Carson City where she gave a speech to a packed theater of 1500 that evening. And then they drove her back down the mountain at 1 a.m back to Reno. And so I asked the gentleman that was uh, driving the Ford Model T, I said, how, how would that have worked? How would they have gotten her back down the mountain at 1am? And he said, well, the headlights only work for about an hour, because I guess it's some kind of chemical that burns, and then it burns out. Um, and so he said it would have probably taken them the entire night to get her back down because they would have had to go along the dirt switch back roads very, very slowly without headlights to get her back down. And um, I mean, it, she was traveling in October at elevation. It's cold out there. And um, when I was standing out there close to um, 
Carson City to take photographs that one of them's entitled Back Down the Mountain at 1 a.m. Um, I was bundled up in, in like gloves and a hat and like a ski jacket that's down, you know, and I was, I was freezing trying to take the image. Um, so I can't imagine riding in a car that had, you know, it doesn't close up. Uh, so she's out in the elements and been speaking all day and had no sleep and is already sick. So it kind of hammered home what she was going through. And then mm-hmm. another thing that I did too was um, I uh, flew to Salt Lake City and then took an overnight train, an, an Amtrak train from um, Salt Lake City slash Ogden, Utah to Sacramento. Um, and so uh, some of the trains are images that you see in the series that are photographed um, out. So it looks like you're looking out a train window. You actually are because I was on the train and that would have been mm-hmm. the route that she was on. Mm-hmm. How many months, how many years did it take you um, to take this journey and capture these images? I think I started photographing probably there, there's some of the early photographs like the training that I mentioned from 2012 or the ballot box I took in 2016, kind of before I had figured out that I, you know, before I met Inez, if you will. Um, but I started photographing in earnest uh, 2018. So but mostly 2018 and 2019 was when I was kind of arranging all of these trips and trying to figure out models and trying to get all the props and all of that stuff. So that was a pretty intensive two years because originally all of this was supposed to launch um, in 2020 for the centennial celebration of the 19th Amendment, but COVID had different plans for us. (laughs) For us all, that's true. Well, Janine, I just want to thank you so much for spending this time and telling us this incredible story. And I want to remind our readers and listeners that Standing Together is currently on view at the Arnika Dawkins Gallery. And you should consider it as part of your Thanksgiving, early December plans. So thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you for having me. A half century ago, CBS released a TV movie called The Homecoming, A Christmas Story. The wholesome family-oriented film did so well, it was turned into a series called The Waltons in 1972. The drama turned Richard Thomas, who played John Boy, into a major star, and it became a huge hit, lasting nine seasons and 221 episodes, and spawning six more films through 1997 after its cancellation in 1981. Now, for the first time in nearly a quarter century, the Waltons are back in a redo of that 1971 film. Dubbed The Waltons Homecoming, The CW will air the movie twice, the first time on Sunday, November 28th at 8 p.m. and again on December 11th. Find out more about this Georgia-filmed remake and how they achieved a wintertime look in summertime Georgia on the radio and TV talk blog at AJC.com. Man caves often feature neon beer signs, autographed sports jerseys mounted on the wall, a big screen TV, and maybe a foosball table or a Miss Pac-Man machine. But Anthony St. Anselmo of Woodstock decided to go a different route in his classic suburban home on a cul-de-sac. Over the past three years, his basement has been transformed into a 1980s-era video rental store he named Mondo Video, replete with 6,000 VHS tapes and side rooms focused on films for kids, sports lovers, and food. He has 2,000 more tapes in storage. Read all about this unusual hobby and see photos on Rodney Ho's radio and TV talk blog at AJC.com. A Falcons game at Mercedes-Benz Stadium might be seen by tens of thousands. A poetry reading in a coffee house might be heard by ten. Street art is often the same way. Because of its prominent location, the John Lewis Hero Mural towering above the downtown connector has been seen by thousands of Atlantans, but Charmaine Manyfield's obscurely located mural on the West Side Beltline is difficult to see even for people walking or biking there. There's a guide to finding Manyfield's mural and other 
hidden street art gems in the West End and East Atlanta on AJC.com. Countdown to Christmas with a variety of advent calendars featuring chocolate, wine, Disney and Marvel characters, plus personal grooming items designed for body bliss. We've spotlighted nine calendars that include up to 25 pieces, pockets, or boxes of trinkets for fun-filled or delectable surprises each day. Pop-up trees and boxes with dates keep all pieces organized. Some calendars, particularly the two dozen sterling silver earring boxes and generously portioned wine bottles, are perfect for sharing or gifting as stocking stuffers after opening. Check out our list on AJC.com. To get the AJC delivered or to subscribe to the e-paper, go to AJC.com slash subscribe. For more things to do in and around Atlanta, go to AJC.com. The podcast is edited by Tyson Horn. The theme music is by Bo Emerson and Billy Guen, and I'm your host, Shane Harrison. Join us next week for more Access Atlanta. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Constitution.